Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Welcome to our annual science book extravaganza. This is the one where we grab our favorite two science readers and ask them to look back through the stacks of sciencey books they read this past year and give us their thoughts. Here are the books they loved, the books you might consider picking up for yourself, or for that science reader you know in your life. And as we have in all previous years, we have our blog post live on the website where you can find the complete list of books you're, you'll hear about on today's show, including links to where you can buy those reads online. If you are thinking of buying one of these books or any book you heard about on a past episode of this podcast, do check out the book list for this episode or the bookshelf section on our website where we keep all of them in one big collection for your perusal. And if you use our links to buy those books on Amazon, we get a little kickback, usually around 50 cents, for sending you over. So you can also use your Christmas shopping to support the show free of charge. Returning again is the wonderful Joanne Manister, a faculty Hi. lecturer in biology at the University of Illinois School of Integrative Biology and a science educator and communicator who is also known as Science Goddess on Twitter. Joanne, hello again. Hello, so glad to be here. Very excited to do this again. And returning for another year is the always delightful John Dupuis. John is a scholarly publishing librarian and engineering liaison at York University in Toronto and still blogs sporadically at Confessions of a Science Librarian. John, great to have you back too. Yeah, it's great to be back once again. Uh, always a good place to start this discussion, uh, just as a sort of guideline for people, if you can give us approximately how many science books uh, you believe you read in the past year? Well, I, I had to go through and it's always a chore because you're sort of like, well, is that history, science? What do you call that? But I, I gave it about 67 or so. I think it's a little less in the science category than other nonfiction for some reason this year. Yeah, I, I maintain a special tag in my Goodreads that where I track the the reading, and and Goodreads tells me this year was thirty seven. Awesome, uh, my reading uh, of science books has fallen substantially this year. I think it was probably only about a dozen on uh, my front. That's what happens when you start to fall in love with Dungeons and Dragons, is you start to read a lot of D and D books and a little <laughs> less science. <laughs> Um, sure. <laughs> it would be good to I, I, try, know. I try. I try and combine mine, right? I, I, I try and combine all my various obsessions. I think that works out really well. I definitely think there's a gap in the Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, book collection for science fiction based RPGs. I'm sure there are other RPGs that aren't D and D, uh, but definitely D and D's where I'm at at the moment. Um, so how was 2021 overall for science books? Are we looking better or worse than the kind of average year, if there is such a thing as an average year? Yeah, that, that's always the question. So I took a different twist on this. I looked at how many climate book, climate and environmental books were written. And I right now have a list of nine. I didn't read all of them, but I read most of them nine books on the climate and environment that, you know, were catching headlines. And then I saw there were, um, and I think that's a little more than normal. Nine is quite a few, um, even though there, it's a constant topic. Um, but I think this year seemed to really 
uh, want to highlight this topic. And another topic I saw that was really highlighted was genomics and society, genomics and politics. And I've got at least four of those on the list. So, and, and three books about volcanoes. Yeah. The way, the way I ended up, you know, looking at it um, myself was, I think it was a year that a lot of the science writer heavy hitters uh, had books. And, you know, I think I'm thinking of uh, three authors in particular who are super heavy hitters in the, you know, in the science writing world, Carl Zimmer, Elizabeth Colbert, and Michael Mann. They all had books this year. Mary Roach had a book this year. But I'm thinking of Zimmer, Colbert, and Mann. I read their books. It was such an amazing year for science writing. I read their books. Their books were amazing. But somehow they didn't end up coming out, coming up in any of my categories. So if, you know, if you read a Carl Zimmer book, in a year and it does and you can't find a place to slot it in on your year's best categories you know it was a really good year i love that way of well, that's a good point cuz i've read i've read all three of those that you mentioned so zimmer colbert and um and then uh man i read those I love that way of describing it. Just there's a bit more diversity uh, if those people aren't on your your top lists. And they were all fantastic books. You know, I read so many good books this year that, you know, there was, you know, we don't end up talking about the books we didn't like. And, you know, we should actually have an episode one year uh, where we concentrate (laughs) on the books that we didn't like. Because in some ways, I think the reasons we didn't like them are probably more interesting than the reasons we liked the books that we end up mentioning. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think that's 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 kind of an interesting thing. Uh, that's you know, for me, that's kind of an interesting way of of uh, you know of 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 tackling the problem of how to read, what to read, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, this time last year, obviously, the pandemic was still ongoing, and we did talk about how our experiences in the pandemic had impacted, or maybe didn't hadn't impacted what we were reading. Um, So I do want to revisit that because obviously the pandemic is still ongoing. Uh, As we talk today, it is the 18th of November, 2021. We are still in various states of pandemic mode. Uh, We've got three different um, countries of sort of origin sitting at the table right now. Uh, I'm in the UK. John's in Canada and Joanne is in the US. Um, So there's a a little bit of diversity of experience here. Um, So I'm interested to know how the pandemic maybe impacted or maybe didn't impact what you were able to read, the types of things you chose to read. Well, I think, um, I don't think the pandemic itself made uh, much of an impact. I am still sort of waiting for the definitive pandemic book to come out, uh, something. Uh, There are some ones coming out the end of this year uh, or have just recently come out about the making of the vaccine. So we've got several of those either just come out or coming out soon. Um, I think Michael Lewis, who has written, given us Moneyball and The Big Short and all that, he wrote a book called The Premonition about the pandemic. And I would recommend that to people, even if you don't normally read Michael Lewis, you've probably heard of his stuff. Um, But um, I feel like there is no definitive pandemic, you know, narrative out yet. So I'm I'm sort of waiting for that. But unlike last year, where politics sort of took front stage, and I was distracted by that, 
I think the pandemic hasn't really uh, forced my reading one way or the other. Yeah, I think a lot of my thoughts have turned in the past year have turned to how the kind of the science fictional universe we were promised uh, has more or less seemed to end up being a dystopia. So I think that's kind of a theme for me in a lot of my reading. And I think, you know, seeing how the pandemic affected the less fortunate in society across all societies, I think was a real, you know, trigger for that, for those kinds of thoughts. And, you know, and, you know, and like Joanne, I think I'm, I am still waiting for that kind of definitive book about the pandemic. Um, in terms of my actual reading, in terms of what books I ended up reading, um, I don't think there was actually that much of a, you know, that much of an impact directly. I think I was still looking for books that had a strong narrative as opposed to, oh, just explain something to me. So yeah, I'm not sure. So yeah, I'm not sure if this year uh, the pandemic had that much of an effect, as much of an effect maybe as, as in uh, 2020. I'm definitely looking forward to reading about the pandemic in the future. And what I find kind of interesting in the way that my brain is thinking about reading about this time period in the future. So I think the most interesting stuff will not be what comes out next year or the year after, or even the year after that. I think some of the most interesting and valuable science reading will happen in and come out in like 10 years when we've got some of the larger impact data, when we can actually look back at some of this time and see also some of the societal impacts of not just not just the disease and what happened, um, sort of the science, the, the what we think of as the hard science about the medical aspect of it, but the broader social impacts on medicine in general, on vaccine development in general, on society in general. It'll be, for me, it'll be really interesting to read about this and to understand what changed and what didn't and what changed over what time spans. I'm definitely interested to read about this in hindsight. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I saw this year was that obviously a number of the books were being written in 2020. And so in a couple of, you know, there's several of the books that I read, at some point, the author mentions that, oh, because of, you know, because of COVID, this or that happened in my writing process. And I think in, t- in particular of Carl Zimmer's book, where, uh, you know, a couple of occasions he talks about, oh, you know, COVID changed my plans. And in, you know, also um, mm-hmm. Walter Isaacson's book on Jennifer Dudna, um, that one, you know, mm-hmm. he also mentioned a couple, you know, the COVID changed how he ended up finishing the book. And so that was kind of interesting, again, that, you know, how um, how COVID crept in uh, to the process of writing the books we read this year. That's right. Almost every book where it seemed appropriate, they added this note. As, as you know, I write this, COVID is now sweeping through the nations, um, things like that. I heard that was a lot in many, many of the books. And I think it was appropriate to add that, especially if it was a biology book or, yeah, it it just seemed really appropriate to add this in there. Yeah, it's a reminder that this was a big piece of context that has fingers over so much of life during this period and also likely beyond it as well. Um, it, I think it really speaks to the scale 
of what's happened over the past two years and what will probably continue to happen for another couple of years, um, that people, even when their book wasn't about the pandemic or even necessarily always about biology or medicine, it felt important to note it in the context of this was written during this time and it changed some things about how I wrote it or the way I was thinking when I wrote it. And it feels important to say so. Well, uh, the thing that I'm always most excited to hear is what is the best book you read this year? What wins the top spot for you? Well, it was really, I didn't have a book that went, whoa, that is the book. But there were a couple that I loved because the writing is so beautiful. Um, and actually, I've got two here. Well, one of them is The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans by Cynthia Barnett. And she wrote a book about rain uh, several years back. And I just love the way she weaves uh, archaeology, history, society, the, the, the history of, you know, how we started to discover shells, use shells, uh, trade in shells, sell shells, uh, things like that. It's very beautiful. She's always a great writer, so I love reading her books. So that was one. That one I had I had gotten a galley in May, managed to hit the beach in June, and had the book with me. It seemed too appropriate, too perfect. So um, that one was great. And another one I, I literally just read a couple days ago, um, I'd been meaning to get to. It's by journalist Daisy Hernandez. She's written for New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker. She had a big story come out in The Atlantic about Martin Scarelli, you know, the farmer bro. Um, but she wrote a book called The Kissing Bug, A True Story of a Family, an Insect, and a Nation's Neglect of a Deadly Disease. And it's about Chagas disease and how this disease is spread through the vector of the kissing bug and how you know, some people show symptoms, terrible symptoms, some do not. And just how so little is, so few people are aware of it, what it is and what's happening. And she, she, as all great investigative reporters do, she did a fantastic job. She had a family member who had this disease. And that was one of her prompts to go ahead and start in researching this. And yeah, I, I really liked it. Well, I, I, as usual, I have two as well, uh, a regular book and a graphic novel. The, the book that I, that I enjoyed the most this year, and, you know, if I was making this list tomorrow, I could end up with a different book hitting the top. And no the day kidding. after that, yet yep. another <laughs> book hitting the top. I but the one, I, the one I decided to go with today um, for my top book of the year is Finding the Mother Tree. Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest by Suzanne Simar. It's um, on my list. It's so some nice, Canadi <laughs> some nice Canadian content. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's basically the story of, you know, Suzanne Simar growing up in BC, kind of uh, her love of the forests and her, her life journey into becoming a forest researcher and how she kind of changed this, the, I guess the the change in a way changed the conversation about forest conservation, uh, emphasizing how trees in forests um, cooperate and communicate rather than compete. And so, you know, I thought I thought that was really interesting. But you know, combining her love, the way she grew up, and this this research 
Um, she's a she she's a faculty member at UBC, I think. And so I really enjoyed that. It was you know again combining that scientific uh, knowledge and information with a, a strong personal narrative uh, was something again I think that I was just really looking for this year. And I believe so. If it's correct, she was the consultant for the Avatar movie, and yes. she inspiration for, of course, um, the Overstory by Richard Powers, which won Pulitzer last year, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, her work is so influential. I, I do. It's been on my to read list <laughs> all well, year, all year. It's uh, it's definitely it's definitely worth reading. It's definitely worth reading. It's you know, it's a book that you're just going to zip right through. It's it's so engaging. And on the graphic novel side, um, I'm you know changing the rules a little bit here. Um, uh, the book that I'm choosing is a book. Um, the, the Way of the Hive, A Honeybee's Story by Jay Hosler, which was actually originally, so this is a republishing a, a republishing and repackaging of the book. It originally came out, it's about 10 years ago, as Clan Appies, uh, again, you know, by Jay, by Jay Hosler. And so this is, I, I would have to say, this is the single best science-themed graphic novel I've ever read. Really? Everybody should read this book. It is so beautiful. And, and so moving. It's and it's exactly that. It's a honeybee's story. So basically, it's you know the story of a honeybee's life, the trials and tribulations, birth, going through all the various different life stages. Um, I'd be a little careful with this book for a very young child. It is certainly really appropriate for any for any for children of all ages it's a bit sad at the end and if you're a bit worried about a really sad story for a very young child you know maybe wait till they're a little bit older but it is it is really beautiful and really moving um and the illustrations are perfect so this is like i said this is to me this is this is the best science themed uh graphic novel uh that that i've encountered so far that is very high praise from you. And also wow. something that I am instantly writing down uh, as a gift idea, because I have friends who their pandemic project was to have a backyard hive. So they love oh, graphic cool. novels. I'm definitely going to get nice. them that. It sounds great. Wow. Perfect. Yeah. And I, I, and I yes, caught... buy your books for everybody. Support yeah. authors, support bookstores. <laughs> Jay, Jay Hosler has been one of my favorite graphic novelists for a long time. And I caught up on a bunch of his books this year that I hadn't read before. Uh, and so it was nice to see this one republished this year so I could uh, so I could talk about it. That's awesome. So what about a book that pleasantly surprised you? So um, there were, as always, a couple. Uh, the first is A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey by Jonathan Myberg, who apparently is also a musician. That's what he's been known for. But he, I think he got his bachelor's in English and a master's in science, uh, studying the geographical spatial distribution of these um, caracaras, striped caracaras from in South America. And I, you know, almost every year there is some really good book about a bird, an owl, something for, for some reason, every year needs to have a bird book. And this, this was this year's book and it was very, very well-written in fact, I just kept saying to myself, wow, these English majors are such good writers. <laughs> and so it's beautiful writing, well-told story. And I learned a bit more about the Caracara because they're just not native to the uh, United States area. So I really enjoyed that one. Um, 
again, I wasn't sure. Do I really want to read about this vulture-like bird? I don't know, but I did and I enjoyed it. Um, I also enjoyed the Arbonaut, a life discovering the eighth continent in the trees above us by Meg Lohman. And she's one of the pioneers in how to study the tree canopy. And um, I guess what surprised me about the book is she's older and she was able to share what, what everybody knows that there is just this uh, incipient sexism in science and harassment, et cetera. And how, um, you know, she, that wasn't the focus of the book, but I feel like this was the time to write the book and include those things. So she had written this book 20, 30 years ago when she could have, she couldn't include those things. And I felt like these were important and also a surprise. Um, glad to see people are feeling comfortable saying, yeah, I do. You know, I made these discoveries. I did this. I collaborated with people. I did all these things, but guess what? There's also this sort of dark side. And I thought, which, which sounds weird to say, I'm pleasantly surprised, but surprise was definitely the word. I didn't expect that uh, sort of confessions in there, but yeah. important. Yeah, the Meg Lohman book is a book that I was really hoping to get to this year, but didn't quite manage to get to. So, definitely, so I'll definitely put that at the top of my list for um, for books to catch up on from from this year. A, a book that that's your tree book, and mine is Samard's book. <laughs> exactly, it's the, the, the it was the year of the tree book. Um, <laughs> so, the book that pleasantly surprised me was, I think, my second favorite book of the year, and I I guess it uh, surprised me because. I was I wasn't really expecting to like it as much as I liked it. I was expecting like, oh yeah, this is going to be great, a lot of uh, really really cool info in here. But it's arriving today, from factory to front door. Why why everything has changed about uh, how and what we buy, which probably has the, long, the, the longest title of the year by yeah. Christopher Mims. It's an amazing amazing book and very timely given the. Uh, logistics and supply chain issues that we're having globally. And, you know, with the huge floods in BC uh, right now, you know, I think Canada is going to have uh, an unpleasant awakening about supply chains and logistics. And, and it was, you know, so the MIMS book, I, I, I found, again, it's none of, yeah, I guess in a sense, none of it was really a surprise to me. But it's just the way he pulls everything together and basically follows a, a gizmo from the factory in Vietnam to his to his home in the United States through every stage, uh, plane, train and automobile. And so the really interesting thing, Boats. again, is how is a how how long how long it takes for something to get from point A to point B, but how many people touch it and how much misery there is, how much misery and exploitation there is at basically every stage on, on this supply chain, um, how people are being exploited, overwork. There's nothing like this book that's going to make you never buy anything from, from Amazon again. Uh, you know, I got to say there, uh, certainly the Darwinian survival of the fittest conditions at Amazon factories stands out as something that's uh, that's really prominent in this book. But yeah, I this was this was definitely a book that that I really that really captured my imagination uh, much more than I was expecting it to. I liked it too. I did like it a lot and I read it. I remember reading it very quickly. 
it was easy, easy to follow through and, and read and yeah. And, and actually a bit in a way overwhelming trying to imagine all that. Th- this is what this tiny little USB thing did to, to get to my house. Yeah. It was really good. I haven't read that, but I've definitely done some reading and research into supply chain things this year. Uh, Obviously, it's been a a wacky year for that kind of stuff, certainly outside of the norm for a lot of people. Um, And what my biggest takeaway in a lot of that reading, and I'm sure would be one of my big takeaways, it sounds like in that book, is how can something possibly be as cheap as it is when so many people and things touch it? It must be more expensive. I don't understand why it isn't. Yeah, and I think I think the answer to that is misery and exploitation. Yeah. Right. We're enjoying cheap stuff on the backs of other people. Yeah, definitely having some conversations over the last couple of years about thinking thinking about the things we have and the lifestyle we have and the fact that countries often say, yeah, we've reduced our CO2 footprint. That's not actually what's happened. The wealthy countries in the world have just offloaded that CO2 footprint to other countries. We have other people make our CO2 footprint, so it doesn't appear on on our list. And we need to stop doing that. For sure. And I think in a lot of ways, our consumer utopia is is resting on the backs of a whole lot of other people's consumer dystopia. Absolutely. So what about a book that changed your mind about something? Oh, I've got this. So I've got two books. They're both climate change books. And it didn't change my mind so much about the climate issue. Um, But uh, the way they were written changed my mind about how science books probably should be written from now on. The first one is called After Cooling on Freon Global Warming and the Terrible Cost of Comfort by Eric Dean Wilson. And the other was Our Biggest Experiment, an Epic History of the Climate Crisis by Alice Bell. Both of these books did not just say, oh, here's the science, or here's how we started burning more coal, and here's what the oil companies did. It it really put them in context of society and racism and slavery and uh, on after cooling was a little more heavy handed with that. And I could feel myself a little squirming, like, is this what should this be in this book? I just want to learn about prion and global warming and is air conditioners ruining everything for the world, you know, but instead, you know, I, I got that. And then this other bigger picture who, who are, as John was saying, this misery, right. And things happening on the backs of other people. And so both books captured, you know, that comfort of some people were at the expense of other people. And I wasn't, at the first book I read, I wasn't sure about it, but the more I thought about it, I thought, no, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. It doesn't distract from the science and puts it in good context and makes, yeah, just, it's just gives a better view of the world, not, not better happy, but, you know, more accurate. And uh, so, and Alice Bells did the same thing, but not as, um, you know, with a lighter touch than um, the after cooling book, the Freon book. 
Yeah, the Alice Bell book was is again is one that I really want to catch up on uh, this year. That was one that seemed um, uh, that, that was one that seemed like it was it was uh, right down my alley. I'd read it, but I, I was I, waiting I, for years. I was waiting for years for this book. I've been exactly. waiting for Alice Bell's book. <laughs> exactly, and also just I, I think that nice that that kind of historical context. But I I, re- I did read a you know I, I think I read a few a bit fewer a few fewer climate books this year than maybe on average. Um, so the book that, that changed my mind about something, um, and again, changed my mind in kind of a consciousness and general outrage kind of way. I think outrage is maybe a theme in my uh, uh, reading this year, as I'm, I'm just realizing. Again, with the Canadian, uh, Canadian content, uh, Neglected No More, the Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic by Andre Picard. Uh, noticing that my fellow Canadians, I've also picked fellow French Canadians, uh, Simard and Picard. Um, but anyways, so this is a book that is basically about um, elder care in Canada. And in particular, the devastating um, you know, effect that the pandemic had on uh, long-term care homes in in Canada, uh, Quebec in particular, but everywhere, Ontario, everywhere in Canada. And um, so, I guess we, you know, this is one of those things where we have that we have kind of in our mind that oh, you know, these uh, long-term care homes are pretty bad, but we kind of ignore the pretty bad at the back of our minds. Um, but this this is. This this is this brings the pretty bad into unbelievably awful and brings it right into the front of our minds. And you know, I guess Andre Picard is probably the best writer in Canada on public health. And and this book is, I think, a must-read. And I think even beyond Canada, I think probably a lot of the things that he writes about are true in a lot of places and have been true in a lot of places. So yeah, this was a really good book. It was a book that I read right at the beginning of the year. Um, and so sometimes I think we tend, you know, I tend to kind of forget a little bit about the books from the beginning of the year, but this is, this is one that I wasn't going to forget about. It, it, it's, it's a really amazing, uh, indictment of our, of, of our treatment of, uh, our elders. What about a book you couldn't put down? Which one did you just pick up and read at a truly phenomenal pace? You were sort of finished it before you even realized it. The book, it kept me company after my second vaccine when I wasn't feeling all that great, but I kept wanting to read it despite that. So it's called Not on My Watch, How a Renegade Whale Biologist Took on Governments and Industry to Save Wild Salmon by Alexandra Morton. So I, it was... It was really good to read about this environmentalist and activist and how she's just, you know, she... She started her studies in whale biology, but life took her to the uh, far west coast in Canada and the well, the Pacific Northwest area. And I just was enthralled with the book and couldn't put it down. It was very good, very interesting. Yeah, for me, it was a story of a life well lived and a and a life, a kind of a, a revolutionary life in a way well lived. Um, My Remarkable Journey, a memoir by uh, Catherine Johnson, the Black NASA mathematician and engineer. A really amazing story, you know, um, um, and, and just, a, you know, yeah, again, just a really amazing story about a woman who, who just charged through 
and open doors for herself and uh, other people. I really enjoyed it. It was uh, again just such a such such a well told well told story. Kind of an unassuming, very plain spoken. Uh, this is what I did. This is how I did it. Um, so yeah, I thought it was very engaging and uh, just a great story. What about a book that you actually want to read again? Uh, and the first reading wasn't quite enough. And why do you want to read it again? So as always, I cheat and I always have two. It's so hard. So one I read is called Fire and Ice, the Volcanoes of the Solar System by Natalie Starkey. And just amazing how the geology of each planet is so different. And she puts it through the lens of volcanoes and why can't this planet have volcanoes? What's what's up with that? You know, you know, you would think Venus has tons of volcanoes, but it cannot because of the kind of uh, atmospheric pressure and things like that. And I was like, I thought I want to read that again because I just want to like absorb it and make it a part of me. Um, another one I plan to read again is called The Genome Odyssey, The Promise of Precision Medicine to Define, Detect, and Defeat Disease by Ewan Ashley. And um, he, he, well, he's a scientist, but he sort of uh, made a name for himself for uh, sequencing uh, the genome of uh, someone with a rare disease and, and then you know, picking out this rare disease. And so this is sort of his hope of what can happen when we can do this sequencing uh, for people with rare diseases. And of course, I teach a course in genomics, so maybe part of that is to want to read it to understand it even better. And how can I present more of this information to my students? Yeah, for me, it was a couple of books that were that I read kind of at the more towards the beginning of the year, and that were uh, really dense and really full of information and very rich. And finding myself kind of looking at the books now, thinking to myself, you know, I really should have gotten more out of these than I did. Uh, and they really should have left a, 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 a deeper impression on me than they ended up really leaving. And, and I, the, the first one I'll mention is First Platoon, A Story of Modern War in the Age of Identity Dominance by Annie Jacobson. And the second one is uh, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race by Walter Isaacson. They were both really amazing books. I, I really enjoyed them. So rich, so informative, so much, you know, both of those books, so much that I didn't really know about the various topics. But again, I think there was, you know, these were topics that were so new to me in a lot of ways that I, I, I don't think I don't think I learned everything that I needed to learn from them. And I think I need to go back and learn some more. I think and in particular, the, um, uh, the Identity Dominance book that, you know, weaves in a lot of technology issues um, kind of ethics of warfare and combat, the history of various, uh, you know, conflicts in the last 20 years. And so, yeah, there was, a, I think there's a lot there. You know, if there, was a, if there was a book that I would say every first year engineering student should read this year, I, I don't think that that would be, that would be a good one that, uh, because again, it's, it is a, all about technology it's all about how you use these fairly common technologies, but 
you know what? You can make choices on how to use those technologies that are that are good, and you can make choices on how to use those technologies that are maybe not so good. And I think sometimes that kind of stark portrayal of the not so good uses of those technologies can be can be very uh, very engaging and very bracing. And and it's not. And again, I think you know, sometimes with these books, they're like, oh, technology bad. And the Jacobson book isn't really about technology bad. It's about, you know, make the choices that you need to make and, and try and make them better. Right. And so, you know, that's, so that's, a, I think, a really good way to frame those kinds of issues. I think that leads us really nicely into the most informative book you read this year. Which one made you learn something? Okay, I had to scroll to my thing here. Um, so I learned something from several books, of course, uh, but one was The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space, Time, and Dreams Deferred by Shonda Prescott-Weinstein. And uh, so she's a top physicist, astrophysicist, and um, she really talked about her field and she really had this has this passion for how everybody should be able to enjoy the night sky. But like some other books, like Meg Lohman's books, well, but in more detail, she talked about how science, you know, is rife with sexism, racism, other dehumanizing uh, systems within it. And she really tied it all together very well, very well written. I think it's a very important book. And I feel like I, it's very important that people with different voices are speaking up and, you know, showing us what, what we can, um, you know, what science could look like in an ideal world and uh, make it accessible to everybody. Um, I also like The Brilliant Abyss, exploring the majestic hidden life of the deep ocean and the looming threat that imperils it. And this book was about the deep, deep ocean. Helen... Um, Helen Scales, I should say it's an appropriate uh, name because she has books on fish and things like that as well. And she, by the end of the book, she's describing this move to mine the deep ocean and to really disrupt the ecosystem in doing so, you know, like, you know, blindly going and then we know things, but we don't know enough about the deep ocean. So what, what are we Ask, what are we putting ourselves into here if we start digging up this ecosystem? And I just, the way she wrote it in the way I was pretty much furious by the end of the book. Like, I can't believe this is what people want to do. And haven't we learned, you know, the damage that we do when we start digging into these things, but they're like, oh, but the precious metals we need for phones, et cetera, are down there, maybe. So let's do it. So anyway, that was a book where I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I learned, I didn't, I knew nothing about deep sea mining before that book. So definitely was enlightening. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> Disordered Cosmos book, you know, Joanne, I think you're, you're, you, you read all the books that I really wanted to read, but somehow missed. So that one's also kind of at the top of my, uh, at the top of my list for uh, books to catch up on for, from 2021. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll mention it uh, next year as a catch up book. But so for me, you know, the most informative one is, is one, you know, one that I think also easily could have made my top book of the year. 
And, you know, maybe if we'd done this yesterday or tomorrow, uh, I would have chosen as my top book of the year. Uh, And it's Pipe Dreams, The Urgent Global Quest to Transform the Toilet by Chelsea Wald. And so this is an area where I didn't really know a lot. Um, You know, this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, I guess this push to make the uh, handling of human waste uh, more environmentally friendly and more sustainable. And so there was, um, so there was a lot in here that I didn't know. A lot of different projects, a lot of different uh, technologies, a lot of different great stories. So this was a book that, again, like I said, was uh, was something where I learned a lot. And it's very well written. Um, as you can imagine, there's a certain kind of lightheartedness in it that is uh, very appealing. I mean, it's dealing with how to make better toilets and how to make better, you know, community toilet systems. And and so you you you, you do kind of have to have a, a light touch for that. And um, again, it's it's a you know it looks at different systems all over the world, how people do it, you know, in in different societies, how people deal with kind of the same uh, challenges. So that was super informative. Another super informative book that had a very light touch, uh, I think for me, was um, Mary Roach's book from this year, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Uh, And so I'll just mention that one very quickly. Uh, A lot of funny stories, a lot of great info. Uh, You know, Mary Roach is, um, you know, on a sentence by sentence, line by line, paragraph by paragraph uh, basis, probably the best science writer we have. I mean, bringing up Mary Roach, the next obvious question for me to ask is, what is the funniest science book you read this year? Yeah, well, for me, it's definitely going to be the Mary Roach book, you know, you know, hands down. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, There's a lot of, so basically it's about how animals keep getting in the way and keep, you know, spoiling everything for everybody and crash into people's houses, you know, uh, ruin the roads, ruin people's yeah. Anyways, I, I thought it was really funny. I thought it was really, uh, uh, really informative. You know, Mary, uh, I, I came late to Mary Roach. Uh, I, you know, I think um, only in the last few years. And, but you know, certainly now, if you know any any year that has a Mary Roach book in it is going to be a good year. Just it's it's quintessential Mary Roach. Um, I always think. Now, I'll never look at doors the same way because I'm amazed at how bears can open anything. And yeah, it's just just great fun. Great Mary Roach fun. Bears, birds, every every member of the animal kingdom has got it out for us in a way that is actually pretty hilarious. I mean, to be fair, if anyone deserves it, we probably do. There you go. Absolutely. That's true. What about the best science history book or maybe a science biography? So I, well, there were quite a few that came out. Um, well, I can't, I have to, of course, mention the code breaker, Jennifer Doudna, gene editing in the future of the human race by Walter Isaacson. You can always count on him to have a well-written thoughtful book that covers all the bases. Um, so I really like that one. I also read a book called Bright Galaxies, Dark Matter, and Beyond the Life of Astronomer Vera Rubin. Um, I'm pretty sure there are other ones out there, but this one was nice. She had a personal connection to Dr. Rubin, and it was quite well written. Um, 
one I am uh, looking forward to reading, I haven't read yet, is called Scientist E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature by Richard Rhodes. So we've got a great writer writing about a great scientist. I'm pretty sure it's going to be pretty good. That's a, that's a, it's come out, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Somehow I didn't end up, I mean, usually I'm all about the science history books and uh, somehow I didn't uh, end up really reading any this year. I mean, usually I'm shoehorning non-science history books into science history books, but one that I will shoehorn into this category is a novel. The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. And so this is a book that is set uh, during World War II in, in, in the UK at Bletchley Park, right? And the three women who are the main characters in this book are uh, all work at Bletchley Park. There's one that's a code breaker. There's one that is a translator that translates the broken codes from German into English. And there's one that's um, a machine operator working on, on the computers and, you know, flipping all the switches and that sort of thing. And it's, it's kind of a spy thriller. It's kind of a spy thriller. It's kind of a mystery. It's kind of a romance. It's kind of a lot of different things. But it also, but it really gets to the heart of what of of how Bletchley Park worked of what they were doing of of again they were breaking the Nazi codes um, to you know help the war effort they, so they got to you know uh, what they were doing how they were doing it the important the amazingly important roles that uh, that the women at Bletchley Park played in in the you know, in the code breaking enterprise. And so, yeah, this is, you know, if you wanted to get a good sense of what Bletchley Park was, um, you know, the people that work there, how it worked, uh, how important the role is, uh, you couldn't do better than this, than this book. It even, it even featured um, the, uh, it even featured the man that was to become Prince Philip uh, in a romantic, in a romantic role in this novel. So I wasn't quite expecting that, but there you go. And what about a book you would give the person in your life who's not usually a science book reader or maybe even like a nonfiction book reader? Um, I have two here. One is called Aesop's Animals, The Science Behind the Fables by Joe Wimpenny. And she takes a physiological and behavioral look at the animals in Aesop's Fables. So we're not going to learn more about Aesop himself, but we're looking at the animals and is the crow in the picture? Okay, what's the real science behind crows being very clever and being able to drink the water? And again, the you know, what about the tortoise and the hare? And there was such a broad, vast amount of information that really came together so nicely. And I think someone who likes maybe Aesop's fables would like this book. Um, I think the behavior of animals is inherently interesting to many people. Uh, so this one could be a good one. I also like Atlas of the Invisible by James Cheshire and Oliver Umberti. And these, they make spatial maps and there's just a very cool sort of not giant coffee table book, but it's the kind you can leave out and you can flip through a few pages at a time and, and go, oh, that's cool. That's a different way of looking at things. That's, yeah, things we don't normally notice mapped out for us. Uh, very, very cool book. So, yeah, for me, um, 
this is another book that, you know, had we had we taped this on Saturday instead of Thursday might have been my top book of the year. And that's uh, Sapiens, A Graphic History, Volume 2, The Pillars of Civilization by Yuval Noah Hariri, David Vandermeulen, and Daniel Casanave. So this is, again, an adaptation of the book Sapiens that came out a number of years ago. And for me, this is, I, 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 I don't think I've ever seen a better example of um, adapting a nonfiction book into the graphic novel format. Because what, um, you know, it was Vandermeulen and Casanave that did the adaptation. And they, they basically turned a nonfictional book into a book that has characters and a narrative and a plot. And so they really, what they did was, is they, they built this kind of narrative around the non-fictional content that they wanted to get across. And so there was, again, like I said, I can't, I can't imagine a better example of this. I've never seen a better example of, of, of how this was done. And now as for the book itself, you know, the, um, you know, since it's, 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 since it's, Again, one of those kind of history of everything books. And, you know, that's kind of a controversial thing for sure. This, that the, the project of doing a history of, of everything is, again, a bit controversial. This book certainly isn't perfect. But again, it does wrap narrative, this kind of a narrative structure around, again, the telling of the story. But it's also about how narrative structures uh, permeate human culture. And, and have influenced the progression of human culture uh, over time. So again, it was really interesting how, how they, they did both of those things in this kind of graphic novel format. And I think that's something that would really work for somebody that doesn't usually read science books, because it doesn't seem like a science book in a lot of ways, but it certainly is. And it certainly feels like a science book. So again, this, is, this would be uh, this would be a great book for for anybody that uh, that doesn't love that doesn't think they love science books. It's also you know this is also a book I could have used in the what you know which which book could you not put down? This is a book that I raced through in one day. The book I want to shout out in this category is probably falls under a not science science book. It's written by two lawyers and it's called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives by Michael Heller and James Saltzman. This is one of these books that in a very clear, concise way, it unpacks and lays bare a lot of assumptions we have about what to own something means um, and how we decide whose claim on ownership of things, space, time, um, is complicated and also really arbitrary and also is often at tension with other rules we think about ownership. Um, it's a really easy, straightforward read. It unpacks a lot really fast. And I think it's one of these books that is a valuable read for just about anyone um, because it does such a great job of taking a lot of, of sort of codifying things that we all think we understand, but also explaining to you the arbitrary nature of it and some of the history in at least the westernized world of why and how we we have decided to think about ownership in these ways and where some of those rules and laws actually come from, from a, a cultural or institutional or historical standpoint, and also talks very openly about the problems of a lot of them and sometimes how 
there's two different styles of ownership competing and who gets to pick which one wins. It's a really interesting book. It's very accessible. And I think a really um, useful book for more people to read. So that just um, went right to the top of my to read list. I highly recommend it. <laughs> well, it's, Maybe it's, that also, would... <laughs> go, go it's also something that's really important in my work. You know, mm. one of the things that we, you know, we librarians um, obsess about a lot is, is ownership and who owns things and how to figure out who owns things and how to deal with those things in a, in a fair and transparent way. So yes, like I said, top of my list. Uh, it will definitely help you think about that. And also, I don't know that it will have any easy answers for you, but it will certainly give you a lot of tools to help you think about and sort of piece that apart for sure. Uh, maybe that is also then my um, book that I would give the avid, si the avid science reader who has read everything. I didn't realize that's maybe what it was, but there you go. What about you two? Uh, a book you'd give uh, somebody who's read all the science books already. Um, one really interesting book that came out, and I didn't know what to expect when I knew it was coming out, but it's a book called Blue, In Search of Nature's Rarest Color by Kai Kupferschmidt. And it just talks about the science of the color blue, the discovery of blue, blue in nature, and beautiful pictures. Even the uh, the end of the end of the pages, right? The what is that called, John? You would know this better, but it's blue. Like mm -hmm. so, you could turn this book around and it would still be blue <laughs> in your bookshelf. So mm -hmm. the you know the I forget what that's called anyway. But the book is very beautiful, and I thought, well. If you've read everything, guaranteed you haven't read a book like this. <laughs> yeah, so for me, the easy answer was something like The Best American Science and Nature Writing, edited by Ed Young. And I used to read these uh, Best American Science and Nature Writing collections um, every year religiously, but somehow somehow got out of the habit in the last uh, number of years. But I got back, so since it was Ed Young that was uh, editing this year, I figured, well, I'll give I'll give it a try, and it's the book I'm it's it's the book I'm reading right now, so I'm only about halfway through it. But it's really wonderful, and he's you know I think true to the mission of this kind of a book. What he's done is he's surfaced a lot of things from that don't seem like they're science writing, but that are really science writing. Uh, so again, so I think that's that's kind of the easy answer for something like this. But of course, what 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 fun is the easy answer, uh, and so. The stealth science book that I would give the avid science reader is Billionaires, The Lives of the Rich and Powerful by Daryl Cunningham. Why is this a science book? Why is this a technology book, you ask? Well, the three billionaires that Cunningham dissects and eviscerates are Jeff Bezos, Rupert Murdoch, and the Koch brothers. So in other words, technology, right? How this is basically a book about how uh, these tech moguls, you know, Bezos at Amazon, uh, Murdoch at Fox News, and the Koch brothers with oil, right? Again, how they've kind of had this not so subtle influence on, on the world in the last, you know, 20, 40, 50, 60 years. And, and the, again, the misery and oppression that have followed in their wake. And so, yeah, so I think that the, the, they were uh, really, it's a really good book on highlighting how 
that technology world has has really exacerbated uh, misery, oppression, and uh, income inequality. Which, and of course, which is I'm thinking is you know, boy, did I ever have a depressing year of reading this year. Because <laughs> that's all I seem to be reading. Now I, I'm suddenly realizing that's, that that was like everything I was reading. <laughs> and boy, did I need that Mary Roach book. <laughs> yes, so good. <laughs> I will say I love the idea of the stealth science book. And uh, just so that you're both aware, next year there will definitely be that as a category. What is your best stealth science book? I love that idea. Stealth science. <laughs> and I think I forgot to mention that Billionaires is actually a graphic novel. Oh, so again, which is why it's the kind of thing that I would like to give somebody who thinks they've read everything. Because I think a lot of, you know, book book readers don't re- don't really notice uh, the graphic no- graphic novels. And uh, you know, I've read a few of Cunningham's books, and they're all kind of along the same, you know, the the that, that kind of same, you know, general theme. And he's a he's a great illustrator. You know, the illustrations are are you know uh, quick and colorful and engaging. And, you know, and they, they really, they re- really propel the story that he wants to tell. And what about um, a science fiction book? Because let's face it, we're all nerds here. We all like science and we like fiction. Well, I definitely had to go for Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Um, definitely um, on my list because I read his other books. And uh, I also read Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is fine. It was a fine book. And I also read Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I think I liked other books of his better than this one. So, but of those three, I like Project Hail Mary. Just a fun, fun romp like he's doing lately. I think it's a good way to, you know, incorporate some science and math into a book for an audience that, you know, may or may not like it, and also writes in a way probably looking for a movie in the future. Yeah, somehow I, I haven't been reading much science fiction in the last uh, in the last few years. I think I've been more engaging my science fictional side on the uh, visual side. And so I am going to recommend the uh, BBC adaptation of War of the Worlds that's playing in Canada right now on CBC Gem. And uh, depending on where you are, there's probably a different way to watch it. That's it's, uh, you know, that's that's actually really good. A, a book I will mention that has a novel that I will mention that had a lot of great science content uh, is The Bone Code by Kathy Reichs. I don't know. Do I mention a Kathy Reichs book every year? I think I probably mention a Kathy Reichs book every year. Of course, this is about Temperance Brennan, um, the forensic anthropologist who works both in um, North Carolina and in Montreal. I tend to really prefer the Montreal books, and this was mostly a Montreal book. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I think this is one of her best in a, in a bunch of years. And it actually has a lot of pandemic-y kind of uh, threads in it. Uh, I really like how active uh, Tempe was. Some of the, she can be a little passive in some of the books. And so this one, she was really active. Uh, great mysteries, you know, great dissection scenes and a lot of great science content here. So the Kathy Reichs books are pretty well the perfect novels for me. Uh, I'll also mention a bit of a blast from the past. Uh, I did reread the uh, Dark Phoenix saga from the X-Men from way back in the day uh, by Chris Claremont, uh, John Byrne, and Terry Austin. And that was, uh, I picked up a graphic novel version of it uh, somewhere or other really cheap and um, really enjoyed it. 
sometimes these old comics can not age well, but um, you know, this one I found still still held up. The story still is still a lot of fun and very engaging. And what about science books for children? I've got a few. So uh, the Kitchen Pantry Scientist, Biology for Kids, Science Experiments and Activities Inspired by Awesome Biologists, Past and Present by Liz Heineke. Beautiful illustrations in this book. Uh, I just love the style of the illustrations, but also um, great fun experiments. And it's it's sort of tricky. It's easy to make a book on physics experiments and chemistry experiments that go boom, wow, crash, fire, real quick. You're done in 20 minutes. But biology requires a little bit of patience. So she was able to, to really uh, work out some experiments that could be done in a reasonable amount of time. So I, I like that one a lot. There were a couple of books that you can read as an adult or maybe a young adult. Uh, Ms. Adventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life by Jess Phoenix. So she's a volcanologist who then also managed to get into TV. Um, but I think that could inspire some young people who are like, well, what can I do in science? I like volcanoes. What can I do? And The Loneliest Polar Bear, A True Story of Survival and Peril on the Edge of a Warming World by Kale Williams about Nora the polar bear who's at the Oregon Zoo. Um, so very good. I think good books for, for young adults, uh, if not younger children. Yeah, for me, um, obviously, you know, I chose The Way of the Hive as one of my best books of the year, the Jay Hosler book. Um, and that's, again, a great book, a great book for children of all ages. But also one that I really enjoyed was The Curie Society. I'm glad Heather. you mentioned that because I haven't read it yet. And I was wondering. Oh, it's super, super fun. Okay. Um I don't know. the The actual science content is probably a little lacking. It's more. It's well, anyways. It's by Heather Einhorn, uh, Adam Staffaroni, Janet Harvey, and Sonia Lao, Sonia Liao. Um, and so basically, it's about this kind of commando team of you know, young college age women who kind of go on science James Bond adventures to save the world. And so anyways, it was, it was, it was huge, huge fun. Um, very enjoyable. I think the first in a series there, you know, I think there's some of this kind of, for, it, it suffered a, maybe a touch from some of the first book in a series kind of things. It had to spend a lot of time setting up rather than, you know, having the adventure, but generally a, a huge amount of fun. Uh, also mention Bug Boys Outside and Beyond uh, by Lorex uh, Netsker. Uh, which was uh, a lot of fun. Flash Forward, an illustrated guide to possible and not so possible tomorrows by Rose uh, Eveleth. I don't think not really aimed at uh, at kids, but I think since it it combined really short, fun essays with uh, with little uh, comic book sections on various kind of future futurological themes, I think uh, would make it very engaging to slightly older children, maybe 10 or 12 and up. And of course, like I said, I was catching up on some Jay Hosler stuff. So the Sandwalk Adventures and Last of the Sandwalkers, uh, both by him uh, that I read this year and uh, really enjoyed. And what about uh, the books you haven't read yet, but are on your wish list currently? 
either ones that came out this year and you haven't had a chance to read, or even looking uh, farther out into 2022, what are the ones you're looking forward to? Well, the list is super long. And then I've got a separate category for 2022, but certainly the Samard book about finding the mother tree has been on my list all year. Uh, Beasts Before Us, The Untold Story of Mammal Origins and Evolution by Elsa Pacioli. Looking forward to that one. Um, And one I haven't gotten to, Ascent of Information, Books, Bits, Genes, Machines, and Life's Unending Algorithm by Caleb Scharf. Now, my list is much longer, but I'll stop there. One book I want to read because I love the title is Hawking Hawking, The Selling of a Scientific Celebrity by Charles Seif. And I thought, okay, what came first, the title or the concept? I mean, it's a fantastic (laughs) title. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, this is always a bit of a challenge, right? Because we really only have a couple of months before the 2022 books kind of kick in to catch up, right? And so this is this is almost the hardest time of the year. So for me, the Ar- Arbornot, uh, the Megaloman book, and uh, the Chanda Prescott Weinstein book are probably the top of my list of books to, uh, you know, that I'm sorry that I didn't read. That I'm looking at the books that I didn't enjoy and thinking to myself, I would have enjoyed those books better. So that's always that's always the you know a, a painful a painful thing. Um, but a, but a couple of books that, that haven't been mentioned yet that um, that I that I you know might want to catch up with is uh, an uh, an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination by Shira Frankel and I read Cecilia. It. It's Cecilia depressing. Kang. Yeah, I'm it all. I'm all your about category. Fits your I'm category all about depressing. This year. <laughs> I'm all about depressing. And speaking of depressing, uh, nightmare scenario inside the Trump administration's response to the pandemic by Yasmin. Abu Taleb and Damien Paletta. So, you know, I think, um, I'm not sure if I'll get to this one. I think, you know, like Joanne mentioned earlier, or maybe it was you, Rochelle, I think we're a couple of weeks, I think we're a couple of years away from a, from the book on, you know, that first year of, of COVID and how basically the whole world's, or the whole world, a good chunk of the world screwed it up totally compared to how a good chunk of the world did a good job. I think like, like, like you said, I think we're, we're, we're not, we're not quite there yet in terms of getting that, that perfect book. And a 2022 book that kind of caught my eye that I, when I was trolling around Amazon the other day was again, no one's going to be surprised at this because this is always the kind of book that I end up reading. Uh, Tractor Wars, John Deere, Henry Ford, International Harvester, and the birth of modern agriculture by Neil Dahlstrom, which seems to be again how technology um, has uh, changed the way agriculture works, and that that one looks like it's going to be re- uh, uh, very interesting. I'd read that. Sounds good. I, yeah, it sounds right interesting. In the middle of the heartland and farming land all around. So, wow. well, same here, right? One of the big one of the big battles in Ontario is is, is around you know preserving. Because uh, uh, you know that the the Greater Toronto area is one of the fastest growing parts in nor- you know places in North America population wise, and you know how do you how do you preserve how do you preserve the farmland and grow at the same time, and and I think if there's any lesson from what's going on 
in the world in terms of um, supply chains and logistics. It's don't rely on too much on people thousands of miles away to feed you, right? You know, you have to think about, you know, how do we make sure we can feed ourselves a little bit better? You know, every, every little spot in the world has to worry about feeding themselves and not relying so much on, again, food from thousands of miles away. Two books that I just wanted to really quickly shout out is one I'm reading, I just started reading, which is called The Trouble with Passion, How Searching for Fulfillment at Work Fosters Inequality by Erin Ketch, I think is how you pronounce her name, um, which so far is really interesting. Uh, she's, I believe, a sociologist. Yeah, assistant professor professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. Really interesting book. Um and I saw uh, there was another one that I can't remember the name of, unfortunately, that I looked at that kind of had something similar from a different approach, um, just talking about the the values we have about kind of doing what you love. You know, if you if the job you pick or the career you pick is something you love, then you'll never work a day in your life, that kind of thing. And how that is um, when unpacked, it can be a really problematic, troubling value and kind of cultural line that we give ourselves. Um, so, so far, really interesting. Uh, and the one I'm looking forward that's not out yet, uh, which I heard about recently, is What My Bones Know, A Memoir of Healing from Complex Trauma by Stephanie Fu. And uh, that one looks like it is also going to be really interesting to read. So looking forward to that one coming out. Yeah, vocational awe is a, is an issue in librarianship. So I think that first book you mentioned uh, sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it definitely tries to unpack that whole idea um, and talk about a little bit about where it comes from and some of the tensions that it has and also some of the ways it's used to um, to basically sustain a lot of inequality we see while sort of disguising it at the same time. It's super interesting. I just have some 2022 books. So I, I was uh, a couple people that you know have high popularity and social media are coming out with some books. And one is Why Sharks Matter by David Schiffman. And I think that's his handle on Twitter. So he's been an advocate for sharks, educator about sharks. And so he's finally writing a book. So that's coming out. Um, Maya Weinstock, who is well known for her Lego minifigs of um, scientists and explorers and astronauts and things like that. She has a book coming out called Carbon Queen, The Remarkable Life of Nanoscience Pioneer Mildred Dresselhaus. I don't know who that is at all, but I look forward to learning. So I'm pretty excited for, you know, these people whose names I see all the time are, are producing some books and I hope they're great. And this is a last minute question from me, because as we were talking, I, uh, as every year we talk, and I always think about um, some of the books that I'm hoping to hear about on certain topics, and I'm always like on the lookout to hear about these books. Um, so I'm interested to know if there's anything like that, that you two are sort of always trying to find the book on. We sort of talked about how it's not, there's not quite, you know, the book yet on the pandemic. Um, one of the ones for me that I've been sort of keeping my eye out for, for a really long time is like, 
quote unquote, the book on the Panama Canal. This is a, an area or a sort of engineering and historical thing that I want to learn more about. And I want there to be a book that comes out that gives me like a really detailed overview of all of the things of the Panama Canal that I want to learn about. And I feel like that book just hasn't happened yet. And I'm curious to know if either of you have sort of another of these like hopeful books where you're kind of scanning the horizon, always looking for like that book. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I always, that I, that I always watch for and is, is books that I, I guess that are at the intersection of military technology and kind of military strategy and, and kind of the, that relationship between science and society. And so every, so it's, you know, so there's a lot of books that, that are kind of skirting around that and um, that I, I don't, but I don't quite think I've ever seen the perfect one. And, and every once in a while, there'll be one that I think is going to be that book, but doesn't end up being exactly that book. Um, there was one that I, there was one that I read. Um, I'm not going to be able to remember the title uh, that I brought up on the on the show like three or four years ago that I thought it was going to be that perfect book, and and wasn't. So I'm still looking for that perfect book. You know, I think of one the you know one that was really interesting. I think it was was it to serve mankind or something like that. But anyways, it was about, it was about the um, science. It was about the, the, the scientists under Hitler and uh, the compromises uh, that they made to continue whatever it is they were doing or how they went all in with the Nazis. And I, you know, I thought that would, that, that would, that book was fairly close to what I was, what I'm, when I'm, what I was hoping for now, of course, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to dig up the the titles of those two books uh, to, to get them to you. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of what I'm always looking for and kind of what I'm turning, I'm, 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 I'm turning to other books to find that. Right. And, and I think a, re, a, a recent example of, of, a, of a book that wasn't about that, that I was able to extract that from was, I think it was two years ago, there was, um, there was a book about the history, was the history of the naval warfare during World War II. And I kind of turned that into a, even though it wasn't written as a science and society book, uh, it wasn't turned, it wasn't intended to be a book about that intersection between technology and strategy, you know, I kind of turned it into that book in my mind. Um, I think if I had to choose uh, many years ago, I remember asking around Twitter. Now we are talking maybe 2012, 2014. I was asking, is there a definitive great book about geology? You know, and I think we're getting books about aspects of geology, earthquakes, volcanoes, but not one that just explains the world in such an engaging way. That's the one I'm sort of keeping an eye out for. It's always good to know what types of books people are on the lookout for. Another book that I'm always on the lookout for, and, you know, um, you know, my first, my first career was a software developer, right? And so I think I'm I think I'm always look always on the lookout for books that are are really honest about what it's like to be a software developer and that are really honest about you know that kind of software developer place in society 
making choices uh, for good or making choices for evil. And uh, so, yeah, I think I'm, you know, there was a couple, there was a book a couple of years ago, I think called coders. That was a pretty good attempt at that, that I thought was a really honest look at, at the, you know, the compromises that the software develop that software development is all about. But yeah, again, I'm always, I'm always looking for that book too. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting culture speaking from the inside of it. There's a lot of empowerment, but also in some places you feel very much like a cog in the machine without a lot of power. There's an interesting tension there that I'm not sure a book has really properly unpacked about both the power and powerlessness feeling at the same time of, I can create this stuff and make lots of decisions, but sometimes you don't realize that the decisions you're making are actually as impactful as they are because they feel so small. And then you end up with Facebook. A hundred percent. Like right. it's one of these things with Facebook um, as a developer myself that I'm always trying to keep in mind is there were certainly some, I, I even sometimes hesitate to use the word bad actors. I don't think anyone was actively being nefarious in that sort of, you know, mustache twirling way that might be different now, but at the time um, it, it people making decisions about trying to create something fun or interesting or useful that end up becoming really problematic in a way that nobody ever intended or saw coming. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a reality of the modern world that we could, I'm not even sure we could have even foreseen necessarily until we saw how big technology could get. Yeah, I, I kind of see myself as an insider outsider at this point in in kind of the whole software development world. And and sort of the two kinds of books that I tend to see, and neither of which I think are particularly useful, is, you know, um, overly utopian, right? Oh, software developers are going to change the world and make us all happy and productive and safe. But then there's the, there, then there's also a, uh, you know, a real deep vein of kind of finger wag finger wagging books that are like, ooh, software developer bad, computers bad, technology bad, and you know, I don't I don't find those books very useful either, right? Uh, you know, and I don't find them very honest. Um, and so again, I, I what I find what I, what I don't see, what I find it hard to find is a is a book that's that that finds the truth, right? That is that software developers and tech companies and all of this, they're not good or evil. They have, they do good things and bad things. They have good people and bad people, but, you know, let's, let's be honest and let's be truthful about, you know, how, you know, what's really going on. How do people make choices and how, and how can we help people, right? How can we help people make better choices? And like I said, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I, for me is missing is books about making better choices as opposed to glorification or demonization. Yeah. And I think what's challenging, um, and this is also, this is almost becoming a little bit of a mini topic is that I, I agree that I haven't seen a book that finds that balance. And part of it is, I think what we're finding, we actually want to say is that we want technology companies to make better choices for other people, which is a really hard ask. Um, so that's, 
often what it feels like between that is sort of the truth we're trying to find between those two utopian and dystopian bends toward technology. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you both so much. As always, this is uh, a really fun way to spend um, an evening. And I really always love hearing what you two have read. And I, even though I know you're going to send me the lists and I'm going to create a list for all of our lovely listeners to peruse at their leisure, I literally have a little handwritten list in front of me that I've been jotting down because there's always some books uh, that the two of you talk about that both I haven't heard about and instantly want to read. Um, so there shall be some things added to my own personal uh, to read list. Yeah, I Same love here. that it's nearing the end of the semester, and now I can go dive into lots of books uh, in my holiday time before the end of the year, before the 2022 books hit us. <laughs> so thank you so much. I love this episode. Absolutely. The, the, my favorite thing in the whole year, practically. I, well, I'd agree with that. It's wonderful, as always, to have you both here. And for you listening, if you want that list of books we talked about today, you will be able to find a link to the blog post with that full list and also links to where you can buy the books if you can't find them at your local bookshop. Uh, you'll be able to find a link to that blog post in the show notes for this episode, which should be in your podcast catcher, but also which will be at our website. As always, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 